Welcome back. We're doing part two, What's in a Name? For the most part, we dealt with history. We took a quick look back at the South African context, some of the historical monuments. We didn't look at the specific monuments or street names or things that were named and what the controversies around those are. But we looked in general, what are the potential conversations and the conversations that has been happening. We looked at Peace Must Fall. We looked at Roads Must Fall. We looked at what that meant at the time and, and how the church responded to that in general. There was a lot of emotions. There was a lot of opinions out there. We dealt with that a little bit last time. And then we did say the second part of it is we, we want to zoom in a little bit more. We want to narrow our conversation a little bit more and speak to a particular issue, the renaming of George Whitfield College. It's a college that John and I both graduated from. I think I do want to say that this conversation is not because we, we want to pick on, on, on GWC in particular, but it's because it's the conversation that's currently being had. And so with that in mind, I want to send an invitation out to those of you who are listening to this podcast from different theological and denominational backgrounds to use this as a framework to think through your own traditions, your own theological traditions, your own denominational traditions, and look at your own heroes. You need to think and grapple about your own particular Christian history and context. Yeah. If you're Pentecostal, get into your archives, look at some of your heroes. Is there a super spiritualism that doesn't see social justice as an, as an aspect or is there? And what does it look like in the South African context? What is your legacy? What is your history on this? Let's begin with this. John, can you give us some insight into George Whitfield, the man? Who was he? Why should he be remembered? And why are some now calling for the renaming of the college? Before I do that, I just want to give a disclaimer. So uh, Georgia Field College is part of the rich South African denomination, of which I am not a part of, and neither are you, David. So we both went to the college, uh, but neither of us actually are active parts of the denomination. But we have been following the, the history. We obviously have friends there. I once was a pastor within that denomination. We have an interest in it, but in, in one sense, we're not invested in it. I think that's probably important just to say that as we discuss this, as the place we received our theological education. So who was George Whitfield? So again, I think like most of history, it depends who you ask. But what we do know about him is he was a famous evangelist. He was English, Anglican, became famous for way of preaching to people that the established church at that time regarded as improper. He didn't want the working class people into the churches. They also didn't like the way he preached. There was a number of reasons. And so I think quite rightly, he said, well, if, if I can't preach in the churches, I'll just go preach outside the churches. And so he, he started what I think in many ways we know as open air preaching, and he would preach to thousands of people. I mean, you hear some of those stories and you're wondering, how did they even hear him? Hundreds upon hundreds of people got saved from his, his work as an evangelist, as a teacher. As part of that, he was invited over to America to, well, what wasn't even America, it was the 13 colonies at that point. And he went over and he went on preaching tours there, part of a movement that became known as the Great Awakenings, where just hundreds upon hundreds of people came to faith, including many Black uh, enslaved people. But many enslaved people also came to faith because he recognized that all were sinners and made in the image of God. And that's what he preached, good gospel message. And I think, and so black people say, hey, we are also sinners together with white people. And so people got saved. And he had a catalytic effect in some ways on the black church. I think 
the memory, and certainly the memory that I was taught as we looked at history, because we spent quite a bit of time looking at the Great Awakenings, looking at George Whitfield, was around George Whitfield, this great evangelist who did, and God used him mightily to bring many people into the kingdom. Yeah, I think that's what you said in a nutshell, that's good. And I like the fact that, you know, I know some historians attribute, you know, some of his preaching style as the African-Americans. And at that time, it was Africans as they looked at this, let me say, particularly African-Americans, they looked at Whitfield's style of preaching. Mm -hmm. The black church in the States, they they borrowed from that. Because this guy was, he was in theater, he he had some of that history. And so I know some of the... The people in the Anglican church, they were at the time, they were like, what is this? Because everybody yeah. used to read from notes, heavy yeah. theological papers. That's right, so yeah. he appealed to the lower class, in particular also the slaves. He yeah. appealed to them in terms of their style because their own style, just being African, yeah. there's a way of expression. And I think there was something of an affinity there that as the black Christian church grew, they honed in some of that history yeah, uh, or, that, or that legacy of Whitfield. And so that is something really to, to celebrate. Yep. Even in as the black church looked yep. at that and was like, wow, yep. look at this white guy. He's, he's doing yep. it for Jesus. He certainly was a, was an interesting man. He wasn't right. on both sides, depending on what time of history. He was frowned upon both within yep. you know, white circles and later probably in black African-American Christian mm-hmm. circles as his views changed about slavery and that kind of thing. And we spoke about this in part one, where we're looking at kind of the dark side about George Russell. It has a lot to do with slavery. So even though he preached a gospel that of equality, of all being sinners before God, and, you know, in a strange way, it was empowering to black people. They said, we are sinners the same as white people. And so they came, and so they got saved, they came into the church. But yet that kind of spiritual equality doesn't seem to have moved in any kind of social and economic equality. The nutshell is when he went to to America in around the 1700s, 17, late 1730s, early 1740s, he started an orphanage. So even there we're seeing a gospel and a faith and a theology that is reaching out beyond the church. He started an orphanage to care for orphans, but at the same time, he was struggling to make that orphanage work. There was some farming involved in, in that as well. They couldn't sustain it. They couldn't produce enough product in order to make the orphanage sustainable to care for these vulnerable children. Also at the same time, in when Georgia was established, it was declared there would be no slave owning in Georgia. Not for many benevolent reasons, but mainly just because they were they were fearful. There had been slave uprisings in other places. There'd been slave rebellions. And so I think those who were administering that colony, they wanted to avoid that. So they said, no slavery. But as it became obvious that there, there was a need for slaves, an economic need to have cheap labor, to have free labor, to be able to manage this land amongst the many of the settlers, they began campaigning to be allowed to have slaves. And even though Whitfield had spoken for the benevolent treatment of slaves, he had never spoken about actually abolishing slavery. And as the need became apparent that he needed, and this is, I always find this somewhat ironic, he needed the cheap labor which enslaved people offered in order to keep his orphanage open. He himself threw in his lot. There's some debate as to how actively he campaigned for slavery, but certainly he was pro-slavery. He was pro-allowing slavery in Georgia. And so we have this legacy of George Whitfield, who, though he was about orphans, though he advocated for slaves being treated well, he in fact wrote a scathing treatise against slave owners, he still was okay when it suited him, when the economic needs that he needed for his orphanage to work, 
he was okay with the oppression and the injustice of slavery. When we asked that question in Africa, why should a college be named after someone who supported the kidnapping, the trading, and a system that was involved in dehumanizing, in raping, in abusing, in, in stealing people from their homes, in just exploitation? Is that a legacy that we want to be honoring at all, perhaps? But particularly, yeah. you're going to ask that question, is that a legacy we want to be honoring in Africa? That, in a nutshell, is some of the controversy. Yeah, that's certainly some of the, the controversy. And so it comes back to the, to the South African and African context, which some, and I think we must be honest here to say that we have brothers who also graduated from the college and who are in the denomination who are currently in this conversation yep. because they're part of the denomination. And so we are speaking with some of them and some of them do feel strongly about uh, the renaming. And it's precisely because of that, that reason. It's our context. We spoke about this last time in the first part that naming certain people, not taking away from all the good that Lord, uh, Lord has done or used them for, taking away from all of that, but it's not potentially appropriate within, and I'm using potentially because I'm being yeah. generous here, appropriate <laughs> within within our context, with our history in mm. Africa, with slavery and that mm. kind of thing, to name to name something after George Whitfield. Mm. And I think that's where some of the tension sits because it was a system. It's not just an individual's acts. You can't individualize these actions from if you if you read his letter to the colony yeah. and what he says there about the brutal treatment of slaves yeah. and then to later support it, you can't divorce the fact that all of that is still happening. And you can't say like, oh, but that is out of his hands. He knows what is going instead yeah. of advocating from his own hand, yeah. you know. Yes, there's a different way of, of then approaching or even then coming up with a different system and speaking to the system in that people are equal. And what does this mean? I mean, looking where we are now, where the States is now, is that there's a different system. The system is different. It's no longer, you know, actively oppressing people in that way. And it's possible to still employ people, <laughs> as yeah. it were, to yeah. actually see for the betterment of country and the and the and that those days, the, the colony, economically viable, make the country, you know, prosperous. But none of that happened. None of that happened within his response. And so effectively, in my view, there was a system that he supported that actually treated people by his own words yeah, that's uh, in a way that was dehumanizing. Mm. Your point earlier about naming things and that just that dignity there. I think we come back yeah. to that again and we say, how does naming a college after someone who actively supported the institution of slavery and all that means, all that dehumanization, all that, that oppression, that stealing, that rape, that beating, those, that murder, everything that happened, that entire system, someone who actively supported it when it suited them and their economic needs. How do we name a college after someone like that in the homeland, in the very place from which slaves were taken. How do we do that? Where's the dignity of those people? Where's the dignity of African brothers and sisters? At the very least, we have to ask that question. Yeah, so it's complex. So, I mean, but here's the thing. That's where the conversation is at. We're not bringing this up. It's not new in terms of no. we are raising this. This is an active conversation that it's being had. 
And so we just bringing out the facts. That's where the conversation is. Can we talk a little bit about the objections to the question of Woodfield's legacy? Right. There are people who are objecting to this side of his legacy. So some raised the objection that George Woodfield practiced a type of benevolent slavery. He preached the gospel to these slaves and saving them from a far harsher treatment in, in another context. So is there any merit to that argument that, listen, although he perpetuated the system by by being for the system, and he couldn't find in scripture anywhere where it says that slavery is wrong, that's one of the arguments. Yeah, and so yeah. um, slavery is fine, but he, he was against the kind of slavery that was happening. And so he participated in the system. It was just a different kind of slavery, which was benevolent, kind and that kind of thing. Yeah, look, and history does kind of seem to bear out that he wasn't the worst slave owner, that he treated the people that were enslaved under his hand with some kind of, of benevolence. But I just have a problem when we look at history, and I have a problem when we use this kind of language, because it seems to imply that there are only two options. The one is the kind of harsh, absolutely oppressive slavery where people are beaten and raped daily, treated as worse than animals, as opposed to a kind of benevolent slavery where people are maybe not beaten too badly, and people are still, are given food, and people are treated with some level of dignity and respect. They're not free, but they're given some level, and it's like these are the two only two options. Yeah. Because there is a third option, and I think we have to be honest. There is a third option that says slavery is wrong, slavery is ungodly. I sit here and I say I don't know how you're reading scripture. How are we reading scripture? How are we when we read scripture, we see the ethos of scripture. We see the nature of of what God is like, what, what the nature of scripture is like. How do you justify slavery? How do you justify stealing people from their homeland? How do you separate ripping families apart? I mean, as Christians, that's always been something we're very big on the family, right? Unless it comes to black people, black people from Africa, then we're happy to rip uh, families apart, both in Africa and when people arrived in the in the so-called New World. How are we okay to to control people, to own people? Where do we think it's okay to own people? Like that's got to be a very real option. Yes, maybe there was a kind of benevolent slavery, but I I think we, we, we actually need to push these guys for a third option. And we need to say that for whatever the reason is, is they didn't see it. How did they miss this? I love what you said about when we read Whitfield's letter to the colonists about the harsh treatment of slaves, he himself sees the system. He knows what the system is capable. He knows what it's doing. Why does he not seek to dismantle the system? Why not? We have to ask that question. And yes, maybe it's easy to do that from 300 or whatever years later, but we must still ask the question. I think we we need to get away from this dichotomous thing saying there's, there's only two options. There was a very real third option. There was a very real third option. And some in his day and shortly after him, even some white people, like, let's be honest, spoke against slavery. So Wesley spoke against slavery. He was very his much mentor. a, con- yeah. his, his mentor is very much a contemporary of his. Wesley could see it. We, we can ask that question at least and go, well, other people like you saw a difference. Like, why do you get a free pass on this? I don't think you do. So I want to speak to the benevolent thing. I want to quote something yep. Whitfield said. He said this, open quote. What a flourishing country might Georgia have been had the use of them, Africans, been permitted years ago. How many white people have been destroyed 
for want of them. In other words, how many white people have been destroyed for working in these harsh sun climates? Because according to him, that our skin color being darker are made for this kind of climate. And so he, when he says how many white people have been destroyed, he's basically saying they better suited for this job. And um, not, not only in terms of skin color, I just think in terms of temperament that black people are more uh, suited to manual labor. There's also that kind of sure. idea going, yeah. So how many thousands of pounds spent to no purpose at all? So he's even going to the economic thing in his sort of defense for slavery. He so for it. me, so when you talk about benevolent slavery, you may not <laughs> kick or beat me, but there's certainly a, I mean, think about this. Why are so many of our young people in the South African context at schools decrying the systemic oppression of, mm. you know, we have access to these schools, but there's a way in which the teachers treat us. I can't wear my hair in a particular way because right. there's this microaggressions that's here because there's a there's things embedded into the way they do things within that system and the way people see themselves because they're living in a racialized society and they have this picture of me that when it comes to our relationships and them dealing with me within this system or within this our relationship, that that stuff comes out and it's hurtful. Mm. Although they're not saying, you know, whites only or you're not allowed in here. And I think there's some merit to that in that maybe Whitfield didn't kick his hands, maybe he didn't beat his hands, yeah. maybe he didn't do all those things. But as a person of color, I can tell you now the amount, how bad it hurts a person in this context of ours, how bad it hurts a person of color when there's some perceived idea about you when you enter a room and people yeah. look at you in a particular way and you know it's because of your skin color and you know there's kind of perception that comes because you are a person of color. You don't need to kick me physically for that kind of behavior to hurt me. The side comments that's being made, all the assumptions in the room about my capabilities and maybe he should be there in that context, preach there because he's not fitting because we are somehow what? Those kind of things. And if you were a slave under Whitfield and he held this, these views right. about people of color, it's bad. And it would have shown in his relationship with these people. And those things are not documented because he's not beating them. Yeah. He's not shown to be this person who's out to get, and he's preaching the gospel to them. Mm. We can hold that tension and saying like, and at this point, I want to say about that conversation is like, listen, maybe you need to listen to the people of color. Listen to those who are telling you that there's more to this thing called racism and systemic racism than just the physical and economical implications oh, so and effects to it. Yeah. And we need to have that holistic conversation. And one of the other comments is, is made, and that's made by Whitfield himself, is that there's great benefit in slavery because it actually enables the slaves to hear the gospel and enslaved people. And so in one sense, it's God's sovereignty that has brought them there. And, and so one of the, the kind of defenses of Whitfield is that he, he not only treated his slaves kindly, but he also preached the gospel to them. And Whitfield kind of intimates that that actually it's God's sovereignty and it was a good, it wasn't an altogether bad thing that these black men and women were kidnapped from their homes, they were trafficked, they were brought all this way so that they could hear the gospel and be saved. I just want to ask a question at that point. I have to ask this question. I have to say, what gospel is Whitfield preaching? 
And we need to ask that. And it is a gospel of the status quo. It's a gospel that says that all that matters is getting saved for heaven. And all that matters is the spiritual. And so we can beat the body of a person. We can enslave the body of a person. But as long as they have made some spiritual commitment. So what is good for heaven is not good for earth, which is contrary to the Lord's prayer, by the way. But we just have to ask these questions. And we've got to come back to it again. And we've got to say, what is the nature of this gospel? Is it a holistic gospel about the redemption of all things? Is it a gospel about, about life and hope and justice, about forgiveness? Absolutely. Or is it just this narrow gospel about getting into heaven one day when you die in such a way that it enables men like Whitfield, like Edwards, like thousands of others in order to perpetrate injustices against people whilst also claiming, but we preach the gospel to them. What is this gospel that you're preaching when we look through scripture? Is this the gospel we see in scripture? And I want to ask questions about it. I want to ask questions about this, this gospel. It's massive. When you have that implication of gospel implication, what does that mean? And I know you use this probably more strongly than me because I would talk about the lines of the gospel. You would talk about the gospel that you actually preach. Yeah. And the salvation and liberation that the gospel brings. And so that's something definitely to think about. But here's another one. Some have suggested that we need to consider the original intent and spirit within which the college was named after George Whitfield. So what was the intention? What was the spirit behind that? We may assume that from, I mean, there's also historical records that, that hints to that, that it may be his legacy as an evangelist. I mean, we spoke about the fact that the way he preached Sure. You know, some people would say Whitfield would stand, for example, on, on Signal Hill and he would preach his message and you would hear him all the way in Camps Bay. I'm exaggerating there. <laughs> but you, his, his, his voice was certainly something that was impressive. And so in his style and, his, and his, what he was doing, is just his person. Right. Uh, and as a Bible teacher, which is being commemorated rather than yeah. those as, as a slave owner. So those were the sort of dominant things. Maybe God is Anglican as well. There's something... Yeah, yeah. There as well. um, how would you speak to that? I'd say a number of things. The first thing I would all ask the question is this is saying is because because coupled with that is, is sometimes people say we weren't aware of his legacy. And I'm going, okay, we will make mistakes, that's fine. But ignorance, but we don't excuse ignorance as a reason to continue. If you weren't aware, if you've realized that this is part of his legacy, then we can make changes. I don't want us to hide behind ignorance and saying, we didn't know that was. That's fine. We will believe you. We'll take you at your word. Now you know. Now what are you going to do with it? So that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, my question is, like, and I've read some of the records, and there was a paper written by one of the George Whitfield lecturers who kind of outlined a lot of this. And, and I can trust maybe that was the intention. But again, we look back and we go, who were the people involved in that naming process? Who were the people that made that decision? And I can tell you from looking at the papers, from my own understanding of history, from actually even having read the history of the Church of England in South Africa, as it was called those days, when I was at college, and I've read through it, and I can tell you exactly who, who took the decision to name it. It's white men. It's white men. And so, so one sense I want to go, maybe there was an ignorance, but maybe it wasn't an issue. The issue of George Whitfield's slavery is injustice. Maybe it wasn't actually an issue that you felt deeply about. It wasn't something that affected you. And so it was easy to perhaps look the other way. It was easy perhaps not even to do the investigation because it didn't affect you. And that's where we come back to again. And we have to ask the question and say, 
Who are the people who are controlling the narrative? Who are the people who are shaping this? And, and time and time again, we're coming back and we're saying it's white men. And so should we expect to see a white man lifted up, a white man with a history of injustice and pro-slavery? Should we expect to see him lifted up? Should we expect to see his sins wiped? And yes, we should, because we've seen this time and time again. So I want to ask the question and say, who was involved in that process of naming George Whitfield College? I processed this question so many times, and I, was, and I, think, it, it, I think there's something in saying that it matters who's in the room. It matters who's in the Absolutely. room. And when people are in the room, it matters that there's a culture. Because yeah. it, it's not just, because we've learned from access. Access does not give in and of itself dignity. Because mm-hmm. there's a socialization that is that people as color have to also sit down and say, how does this racialization affected our understanding of history of ourselves and right. our relationship with others? And mm-hmm. so... It is, as one lecturer once said, that if you're going to get any person of color in a previously in an institution that was previously, you know, predominantly white, it's it's also getting the right person there. It's not just somebody who's going to be a yabas. You, you need somebody who's able to speak truth and have a commitment to truth as much as they have a commitment to the Christian unity because mm-hmm. sometimes the one comes at the expense of the other and we have this warped idea of reconciliation, yeah. of unity. Unity will even say that this is this conversation is not to be had because it breaks up unity. These kinds of conversations are not. And so sometimes mm-hmm. we hope in the background, this is the one conversation or the kinds of conversations that we hope for just disappears. Yeah. must just somehow disappear in the background. And if we don't talk about it, nobody will bring it up. Yeah. It's that double thing. And so it matters who's in the room. And if people are going to be had in the room, uh, I want to pose a challenge to ask the question, who is for and who's against? And look at the numbers as well. Yeah. So when the conversation is had in terms of for or against the name, who is for the name? Yeah. Who's predominantly for the name and who's not the name change, what that communicates and yes. whose voices is heard mm. in that conversation. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And our thought is, is that if, if all that matters is this kind of proclaiming this spiritual gospel, this individualistic spiritual gospel that gets us to heaven. And we're actually not looking at context. We're not looking at who's in the room. We're not asking those kind of questions. We're not listening to the fact that, hey, predominantly black voices are saying this. Surely we've got to listen. Surely we've got to evaluate this because these are the people who have been affected by this injustice. But if we're happy to go, actually, the only thing mattered was these evangelists who preached this kind of individualistic, narrow, heaven, save for heaven one day, but doesn't actually change systems and structures in this earth, then maybe actually George Whitfield is someone who should represent us. Maybe we do stand in his legacy then, because that's exactly what he does. He's someone who says the main thing that matters is getting people to heaven. It doesn't matter if we can enslave them now. It doesn't matter if we perpetuate the system. If we're not asking those questions now, if we're, if we're making the same mistakes, maybe it is the person to represent the legacy. I don't know. Maybe that's a bit controversial. <laughs> yeah, that's controversial. <laughs> it is often said that we look at history, that we must also reflect and be very careful not to engage in what C.S. Lewis called a chronological snobbery. 
namely judging people by the past, by the standards we hold today without acknowledging that history did not always share our same values. So a couple of years ago, and particularly during the time that he lived, you know, people thought differently. You need to be generous and take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. And so should we not acknowledge that they were men of their day and judge them as such, like they were men of their times? Be careful. There's things that people are going to look back on today mm-hmm. with us and say like, wow, why didn't the church in this age speak up more against pornography? Mm-hmm. Why didn't this church speak today about they were so hung up about slavery in the past when there's millions of people being trafficking in our day. Right. Should right. that be the issue of the day? Like, right. will we stand condemned, for example, a couple of years and be asked the question? Like, I think you've snuck in two questions <laughs> there. So I'm just yeah. going to answer the first one and then maybe you can take the second one. The first one about the chronological snobbery, and it is a real thing, and I do. I, we need to be aware of, of judging people in the past by our standards. But here's the thing is this is why the the men of they're just men of their day argument just really doesn't sit with me, because I think we've actually got to be honest and say they were not men of their day. They were white men of their day. As soon as enslaved people get hold of the scripture, by the way, they and and it's interesting that slave owners actively campaigned to prevent enslaved people from getting hold of the scriptures. Have a think about that. Why is that? Because they knew what was in the scriptures, because they actually understood the scriptures. They knew that if enslaved people get hold of the scriptures, it's going to change things. It's going to bring about liberation. It's going to call for equality, all the things that they're trying to stop. But here's the thing is, as soon as enslaved people get their hands on scripture, often in secret, they interpret radically different. They see liberation. They see equality. They see standing up against injustice. And very often, the scriptures themselves are the seeds of liberation within an African-American context. We think of strong people of faith who stood up against slavery. We think of people like, like Harriet Tubman, Fannie Lou Hamer. I think a little bit later, I'm, I'm losing my timeline, but like Frederick Douglass and people like that. Black men and women, as they got hold of scripture, they interpret radically differently. So how is it? that Whitfield does it differently. He's not just a man of his time. He's a white, privileged man of his time who interprets the scripture in a way that benefits him and his people and that oppresses others. That we've got to be honest with that. And the man of his time, we probably want to ask questions about that, but that's another whole podcast because it's interesting. He's a man of his time. What about the, where, where do we include women? But it's such a problematic thing saying he's just a man of his time because he isn't. And even in the example of of someone like Wesley, we see someone who's also a white man who's asking different questions about scripture. He is not representative of everybody. He is representative in this case of white men of his time and possibly some women, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think as you said, there's merit in us being very careful because I think a lot of what's currently happening, I raised those two particular issues, slavery currently Mm -hmm. happening, and the issue of, of pornography. I think right. it's a massive industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's, right. and it's fueling the trafficking thing. And I, and I guarantee you that with so many men in ministry failing, there's traces of that history or traces mm-hmm. of that attached to guys who generally fall in sexual sin. And as men of our time, I think as men, we don't talk about it as ministers. We don't talk yeah. about it a lot as well. Because I think many of us fall short in that department as well. 
And it's a conversation that's awkward. We don't want to have it. In, in our accountability things, we don't want to talk about it. One injustice should not mean Come on. we dismiss the other one. Mm-hmm. Can, can we both, as Charlie Date said, can we walk and chew gum? Come on. Can we not look at injustice and look at, you know, what is, can we not also say that this is important? I can tell you for one, in the context that you are, that God will lay certain areas or certain things heavily on your heart simply because of the context that you are. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the person, the Christian next to you, when you bring that to light, it doesn't mean that that person is not concerned about that same issue or concerned about the fact that God's people are suffering in that particular area. And we need to be generous in that sense. Context matters. Mm-hmm. This particular issue matters to people of color because there's a history that's attached to this. Right. And it's hard for us to ignore that history. Yeah. It's very hard for us to ignore that history. We can't just get over. We can't just move yeah. over this thing. Come on. Okay. We can still talk about, you know, the past and the legacy of the past while greatly being being, you know, heartbroken and and, and affected by slavery and what's currently happening and mm-hmm. pornography and how it's affecting uh, our society today. But I do think there needs to be a kind of awakening on those particular issues amongst the church, and particularly Christian men behind the pulpit, in discipling yeah. men and, and thinking through the implications of, of those two particular sins that I raised. I, I say we can do both, man. But I, I think it's it, it becomes a, a way to avoid talking about the past. I think talking about current injustices should not prevent us from being honest about past injustices. Yes, probably we have more of a, a view of history. We're able to see things clearly, uh, clearer, not clearly. But at the same time, in the, in the paper, I mentioned that um, Steve Rockwell, one of the GW, the George Whitfield College lecturers, wrote, he actually raised the question, he said, how would you feel if in 200 years' time, you know, for instance, there was a the great domestic worker uprising or something like that, he gave some example like that, and that the church of that day looked back at how we treated domestic workers today, and that because of that, that outweighed all the gospel good and all the, the hard work you did for ministry, and that it, because you didn't pay your domestic worker a living wage, because you didn't, you know, look after her properly, and so therefore history will condemn you. How would you feel? And for me, I'm going, history must condemn me. If that's what I'm doing, history must condemn me. In fact, if I'm doing it now, then then I can I condemn me now. <laughs> like, like we actually need to deal with it. And for me, it was just such an awful example is I'm going, well, actually, if history proves that I've been I've been unjust, if history proves that I've been doing things that are ungodly and unjust, then it must condemn me. It must condemn me because I'm not the hero. If that's the case, if you're seeing that today, I want to say, why are we not why are we not speaking up against that today? Why must we wait for that? And yes, if it does taint our legacy, then it must taint our legacy because injustice is ungodly. And we need to stop. And we rank sins. We rank sins where sexual, sexual sins are more heinous. And we discredit people from sexual sins. But sins of racism, sins of oppression, sins of injustice, they get, they're okay. They're just, oh, he was a man of his time. No, he was not. I mean, well, he was, he was, I mean, yes. But, but actually, we need to look and say, yes, he did good things, but actually, this is, this is ungodly, it's unjust, and we need to speak out against it. And if we are engaged in similar things, then we need to be spoken to, and we need to speak out. With, and if history judges us poorly, then so be it, because it is not about us. It's a way of skipping talking about the issues. And actually, it's a way that we skip talking about our current issues plus our past issues because we don't want to be judged to, you know, who wants to be judged by history? I'm like, we have to be judged by history. We're going to be judged by history. Let's 
let's analyze it, let's get in, let's repent. So we probably touched this on this already, but how do we approach these potentially contentious and even maybe I should say divisive issues mm-hmm. through the lens of scripture? How does the gospel shape our response to history and in particular men like Whitfield? How does the gospel help us think through and shape our own theology of what do we make of this? I think the one thing is, you know, and I really believe this, is that in some senses we we need to leave the heroes up to God. I look at something like like Woodfield's legacy and, I'm, and I want to ask questions. I want to say, is this guy even saved? I do want him because I want to sit in judgment on him. But it's a sense that I can go, okay, can I look at his good? Can I look at what is just abhorrent? Can I hold him in tension? Can we talk about him like that? And can we leave the rest to God? Are we okay to do that? And so I think we've got to be very careful in who we lift up as heroes, particularly when there are always people that look like us or look like the group in power. We have to ask questions. So that's the one thing I'd say. And I guess the other thing I would want to say is that we, we don't need to be afraid of the sins of our heroes. The gospel tells us we're sinners. We're broken. In fact, we are even worse than we thought. We should not be surprised at that legacy, but neither should we perhaps celebrate it. What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to love our neighbor? And there's a reason Jesus sums up the law like that. How do we love black people in this context, in this space, in this time, where black people are telling us what is giving them hurt? They are telling us what is giving them pain. And yet we won't listen. How do we come back to that? What does it mean to love my brother and my sister? It's got to be to listen. It's got to be to take their pain seriously. It's got to be to recognize their dignity. I know that doesn't give a, a neat answer, but I, I keep coming back to it because it, it's so simple, you know, just love, love your neighbor, but it's so profound. It just opens up so many questions for us. Anyway. I think there's, for me, there's a theology of lament that, mm, is, like that is not present in all our responses. There's not a weeping at the cross. Mm. We rejoice at the, at, the, at the foot of the cross, but we, we weep. We know Sunday is coming, but you know, can we sit with Friday and just look at the, the greatest injustice in human history that was ever committed was the Son of God hanging there. Mm. And the disciples sat in that moment. They sat in that moment. They didn't have a full picture of what that moment meant at the time. They heard Jesus say, but I think there was unbelief in a sense. Mm. There's unbelief. And I think the question for us is, does a gospel of mercy come at the gospel of lament and the gospel of, of, of justice? Mm. So for me, it is, it is doing that. It is, it is sitting in with those tensions and, and wrestling with that. And it's, and it's never easy. It's yeah, never easy that's with, good. With, with that. And so in that, it comes back to what you said, listening to your, your fellow brother. In this conversation, if you are a person who is who's listening to this podcast and is going like, man, this is this this is so unhelpful because you know we are all sinners and what um, will answer before before Jesus and and that is that and we 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 can still celebrate and we can still hold. We're not saying you can't celebrate. We're just saying the context. The context is 
not appropriate for potentially naming something after in the African context after George Whitfield. And 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 there's there's implications to that. There's implications to that. And those implications may not be as relevant or significant to you, but to those who are listening, I think of Paul in 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 First Corinthians chapter eight. You have knowledge. Your brother has knowledge. The law of Christ overrides both that knowledge. Yeah. He who loves is known by God. Not he who loves is does know God knows God. No, no, God knows you. Don't we want to be known by God as people who, in the face of my brother stumbling. It's something that I potentially don't see as a, as an issue because yeah. I don't particularly hold the tension that he holds yeah, with the other good. tension. My 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 tension, my knowledge of this person and the grace of God and the gospel outweighs that side of the gospel, and the other person leans toward. And I think we need to hold the balance between the two. And and the church has never ever lost with repentance. My wife and I always <laughs> I love that, have man. this. That's good. I've always said this thing. I don't understand at work, you know, when I when I say sorry, even though I know I haven't done anything wrong, I'll go there in gospel humility and trying to win the person over. And I yeah. say, love, maybe you shouldn't say sorry because if you haven't done, don't say sorry if you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe there's some kind of wisdom in there. But there's a there's an attitude with which he came. There's a spirit yeah. in which he comes and in saying that. Hey, sorry if I, because she says, I don't know. Maybe there's something I did yeah, yeah. and I'm sorry. And you know what often happens with sorry? The person who's done wrong feel like they can trample on you because yeah. you said sorry. They sure. feel like they have some kind of upper hand and there's no humility on the other hand. And sure. I think with both these conversations, there's, there's, there's a lack of humility, there's a lack of lament, and we all need to sit and repent and ask the questions of what, is, what does it mean to, to, for the both of us to sit and lament? Yeah. And and this is not a black white conversation. This is a this is a gospel conversation. In that I know there are Christians who are white and black on the one side, and there's white and black on the other side. I mean, look at the room. Look at who's having this conversation. There's a colored guy and a white guy having what? this conversation, yeah. and we're sitting on this side of the room. There might be a black guy and a white guy on the other side of the room. Yeah. We sit on that side of the room, and so we need to handle this with gospel grace. But although you have your opinion, we have your opinion. Don't cancel us. Don't go around now canceling us because we have opinion that differs from, from, from your opinion. It's, it's let us embrace it and say, okay, mm. how do I still love you? Okay, how do yeah. I graciously disagree with this? Yes, this, this is a strong issue and we have strong opinions, but that yeah. doesn't mean that we can't still love one another in our differences. Mm-hmm. In our differences. Man, this has been a heavy one, but I, I think we've, we've come to the end of our, of our, of our talk we've come to the end of our podcast guys if, if this has been helpful to you if you not already and this is landed up on your on your on your pc or your phone because it involves the topic and you've never heard of us you've never heard of this guy david i'm not that important um, i don't know maybe you've heard of john he's usually the guy that everybody knows <laughs> <laughs> so that's not my experience so that's what don't, i'm saying don't, don't blast don't that's blast not my experience man <laughs> So, so anyway, so I think, yeah, if this lands up on your, on your, on your, on your doorstep and you have some views and opinions about us, may Jesus inform those views. Disagree, but may Jesus inform mm-hmm. those views. I love you. I know John loves, loves you as well. We love all our listeners because um, Jesus calls us to love and, and it's not even a command anymore. It's, it's my heart has been changed. Um, my heart has been changed by the gospel. And so I need you. 
as you need me and let us show each other uh, what the gospel says. That must be our aim. Listen, follow us on Yellow Mensa. Follow, follow Yellow Mensa on Twitter. You can check us out there. If this lands on your doorstep now because of this topic, continue following us because there's other topics coming. You can yeah. check out other stuff that we talk about. Isabombano obviously is on Facebook. You can follow us there. If you want to get involved in some of this discussion, drop us an email, drop us a message. If you, somebody calls us, you want to have a coffee, bruh, I'm not your enemy. I'm happy to sit down and we can talk. Send us your comments, your feedback. If you're listening to this and you're like, man, I want to be part of this organization, listen, uh, we welcome anybody. Uh, love to hear you. If, if, if there's any way you think that I can, I can, you know, be a meaningful gospel impact for the kingdom in Yilamensa. We welcome, we welcome anybody who wants to um, help us in that way. But this audio was produced by Exilic Music. You can find them at www.exilic.co.za for making some incredible, incredible, incredible audio, uh, making stuff slick like ours. Clearly, we don't have voices or faces for radio, but these guys make us look good. They make us sound wonderful. Yep. Um, I'm David signing out. And I'm John saying we've got work to do. <laughs> <laughs>